Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Soon after the end of World War II, the United States government formed a film studio in California. Its purpose was to assist the military and other agencies to film, document, and create movies related to the atomic bomb. Kevin Hamilton and Ned O'Gorman, professors at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, are the authors of the book Look Out America, the secret Hollywood studio at the heart of the Cold War, which discusses Lookout Mountain Laboratory. The book was published in 2018 by Dartmouth College Press. In this interview, they discuss their study of the studio, the various projects made by Lookout Mountain, as well as the process of trying to find as many records and useful material from the project. Welcome, Kevin and Ned. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Ned. Hi. Hi, Joel. I'm really glad you found the time to talk to me about your book, Look Out America, The Secret Hollywood Studio at the Heart of the Cold War. Quite frankly, uh, when your publisher brought the book to our attention at the New Books Network, it was one I jumped at because this is my area of research interest from my history uh, research. I teach class in Intro to History where everyone sub- uh, studies the same topic, which in this case is the use of the Cold War, of the, the atomic bomb at the end of World War II. So, um, as I say, this is definitely very interest uh, interesting to me. So I'm glad to have you on. Great. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks. So I always like to get a little more background. Uh, obviously, the two of you, uh, not obviously, I know that the two of you actually work at the same university, but uh, we still... I uh, would like to hear a little more about you, so we'll go alphabetically since that's the way the book is. So, Kevin, why don't you give us more background about you? Sure. Uh, so I come from a fine arts background, an arts practitioner background. I've been at University of Illinois for 17 years now, and I came in as a practicing artist with a focus on digital media, interactive media, and once I landed here at Illinois, I very quickly began to move back and forth between scholarship about media and application of media uh, to the creation of public artworks or gallery installations, online experiences, many other things. Um, at some time there, I started to move more into looking at history of media as well. Uh, film's always been in my sights as really an entry point into thinking about media platforms and, and what they afford socially and epistemologically. And so really the the bulk of my research for the last decade uh, outside of my own arts practice has been working with Ned on this project. Okay. Ned, um, how did you uh, get to where you are today? Yeah, um, I did my PhD work at Penn State and uh, I was in a communication 
department there. And uh, that allowed me to tack back and forth between media studies and what's called rhetorical studies, which is um, the humanistic inquiry into into communication, especially public communication. And and so um, I uh, wrote my dissertation on uh, where were you when events in United States political culture, um, starting with the Kennedy assassination and ending with 9-11. Um, and that it led me, uh, well, first of all, it, it allowed me to earn my PhD and eventually ended up here at the University of Illinois uh, teaching. Um, but it also got me into the Cold War and, and working on the Cold War and researching the Cold War and spending a lot of time at presidential archives and other such places, um, which eventually led to this collaboration here with Kevin. And uh, you have a previously published book, right? Yeah, I have two other books, um, both sole authored. Um, the first book, uh, which came out in 2011, is called Spirits of the Cold War. And uh, it's, um, it's a rhetorical analysis of um, national security policy uh, in the Cold War in the, in the 1950s and 60s. Um, and so that, that's, um, it's, uh, you know, it's, um, it's pretty academic and um, uh, uh, pretty specialized, I guess would be um, the ways to describe it. Um, the next book was much more of a Cold War culture book, and um, that book came out in 2015. It's called The Iconoclastic Imagination. And uh, it was, um, I picked up in that book on some of the themes of my dissertation. Um, and uh, looked at these Where Were You When events, and that was published, um, like I said, 2015 with the uh, University of Chicago Press. That Where Were You When, that sounds like a very interesting topic. Uh, as you pointed out, you start with the Kennedy assassination, which was more of one of my first Where Was right. I, although right. I have a vague memory of Cuban Missile Crisis. <laughs> um, but... You, you read back and you people will do the same thing about things like uh, particularly the attack on Pearl Harbor. And uh, that's for previous couple generations back. Right. That's one of their famous where were you when events. Right. Yeah, I, I, that's actually exactly what got me into the into the topic of the book was just I was really fascinated in the way in which in American political culture, we organize ourselves around these events um, generationally. And um and so that just led me to asking all kinds of questions as to uh, why that is, which, you know, part of the job of a, of a researcher and a scholar is to take things that seem self-evident and sort of make them not self-evident and start asking uh, maybe um, hopefully uh, deeper questions about uh, the phenomena we all experience. And Jill, I think something of what brought Ned and I together, too, is that interest in memory. Um, it happens at those kind of sites. And my background as an artist in public art was one in which I was studying with architects and artists who were really interrogating how we come to remember the events that we collectively remember. And I think that that question of, of why certain events come forward and how they're remembered or how they're forgotten uh, is certainly something that brought Ned and I uh, together around our shared interests. There's no question there's a number of interesting books and discussions about the various events and various uh, time periods and the history and memory aspect of it. Um, 
I can think of a couple ones that are Civil War related, one on Pickett's Charge, for example, in History and Memory. And it, the, it, the whole idea is very interesting, looking at an event or a time period and examining how people remember it versus uh, what actually happened and, you know, whether these kind of uh, um, storylines that come out of these kinds of events, how they develop. Yeah, for sure. So what, obviously you both indicated in your background that Cold War was a topic of interest, so obviously that's been an area of major study for both of you. When did you, first off, what was Lookout? Let's let's get that part out of the way first, just so that as we discuss it, uh, it makes more sense to the listener who may not have heard of it before, because I don't know that I ever heard of it specifically. So what was Lookout? Lookout Mountain Laboratory was an Air Force photographic and motion picture production unit. There were multiple such units in the Air Force, but this was the most prominent and the most specialized. It was active from around 47 or 48 through 68, 69, uh, located in Hollywood, California. Uh, It was a full shop. for production of all kinds related to photography and film and motion picture production. Uh, They ran it as a self-contained studio. They wanted it to be in vicinity of other Hollywood studios. And their charge originally was the production of films documenting America's first post-war nuclear tests. Yeah, I I was reading through some of the blurbs uh, or the... uh, reviews that uh, people who read the book in advance were able to uh, to talk about it. And the, one of the people that was mentioned was, uh, uh, one of the people was, um, I'm sorry, hold on a second, uh, Jane Loader from The Economic Cafe, which I have to admit is still one of those films that I go back and watch every once in a while because... It was probably one of the first documentaries I saw where I was really blown away by how they put it together. It just didn't seem like a typical documentary from the time. Yeah. And those, that imagery was shot by Lookout Mountain. Um, uh, as we'd like to say, Lookout Mountain is the, um, the most famous film studio you've never heard of. Uh, they produced just about any image of mushroom clouds from desert testing, from Pacific Ocean testing that that we've seen. And that footage has circulated for decades, as you allude to there, in popular culture, um, either through uh, getting put in films like The Atomic Cafe, like Dr. Strangelove, or as still images, getting into things like um, works by contemporary artists that are circulating those those images and icons through their work. Uh, But Lookout Mountain was largely secret. And so not many people knew its actual story of how it came to be the place to make these images. So who of the two of you, who was the first to say we want to, it might be a good topic to study uh, Lookout Mountain? <clears throat> yeah. Um, I, I think, I think I was on that. Um, I, um, I was in the Eisenhower library in Abilene, Kansas doing archival work for my first book, and I came across a memo um, uh, about um, a film that Eisenhower, President Eisenhower, had seen at the White House. And um, 
the memo described how strongly the president reacted to the film and how he said every American should see this film. And uh, it went on to describe how, um, of course, every American could not see the film because it included uh, classified material, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but nevertheless, I was just super intrigued by the memo and I was curious as to what the film was. And I went back to my hotel room that night and I started digging around <clears throat> on the Internet, uh, the first go to these days for researchers and um, started searching title names and such. And eventually found um, on the Internet archive a, a redacted, um, shortened, uh, ver declassified version of this film that uh, had been described in this memo. It was it was called Operation Ivy, and it was about the first thermonuclear um, test that the United States um, uh, performed on uh, Bikini Atoll in the South Pacific. And um, and so I watched the film, and uh, the first thing that struck me was not the mushroom cloud, but um, the fact that so much of the film was about um, the gadgets and the gears and the the literally the the um, the bells and whistles of the operation and um at the time i had met kevin a year or so prior to that and he was working on uh, as an artist and as a as a critic he was working on interface uh design um from the cold war period to the 20 late 20th century you know um how we move from from dials to buttons for example and that kind of thing and so that just got me thinking about kevin and and so i we got together for coffee and i started talking about it and we started looking at the film together and that just started this whole adventure um which turned out to be um much more of an adventure than i ever imagined it would be at the time um i really thought we were going to be writing maybe one paper together about one film um, and and focused on on issues of interface and interface design as they connect to notions of technological superiority in the Cold War. I mean, I thought that was going to be it. Um, but uh, one thing just led to another. And before you knew it, we were writing the history of a studio that that, that was highly secretive and really nobody knew about. And so that's what that's where it all got going. So how quickly in your initial review or your initial study to try to decide whether this was someplace you could go before you found out, okay, I, there's enough information available um, now declassified or, or possible for review that you decided this was something that you could uh, easily, or not easily, but, you know, be able to study given that in the period since the Cold War ended, there's been a huge amount of release of material. So we're seeing such great, very many great uh, studies of Cold War uh, situations and events and such. And so you've yep. picked an area that uh, just seems to be coming out of this kind of release of material. Yeah, I'll, I'll say real quick and then I'll let Kevin jump in um, <clears throat> that I would say for at least a couple of years, um, our goal, once we started to feel like we were writing not just about one film, but about this studio and its history, um, we were really thinking about um, uh, a history that was about what wasn't visible, um, what wasn't available to us. In other words, a kind of history of, of, of um, secrecy around the studio is what we had first envisioned. Um, and we had some inspiration there. Um, uh, Trevor Paglin, um, who's a, a critical geographer, has written about the national security 
state um, by looking at, at so-called black sites and um, and what he calls blank spots on the map. This, the, the thing, the facilities that are not on maps because they're protected for national security reasons. And and we were thinking of a very similar approach um, to uh, to that. We were basically going to write sort of a, about the secrecy of this place, not so much its history, because we didn't have access. We thought to internal documents that would tell us what its history was. And then that all changed when Kevin and I were in Los Angeles together uh, some, I would say, eight or nine years ago. Um, and I'll let Kevin tell you that story. It's it's a pretty fun story. Sure. You know, up to, us, up to that point, everything we had access to, we had access to through the efforts of Energy Secretary Hazel O'Leary, who under the Clinton administration in the late 90s, initiated a massive declassification process to get documents, films, and photographs mostly into the hands of irradiated former uh, workers and, and veterans so that they could actually uh, point at the things that had, that had actually happened that they were previously forbidden to even talk about that were impacting their health. So we, at that point, we had access to documents on websites and massive amounts of PDFs. There was a uh, a certain amount of films that had been declassified if still in redacted form. And we were mostly then struggling in the early stages with just getting our hands around or head around the scale of what the objects were we could study. But we didn't take that step into not only thinking about scale, but level of detail and scope until we uh, uh, sort of took a cold, cold call at this. But we we found out that Lookout Mountain had been based at a particular street address that still existed. And in fact, uh, the building is, was still there and it is still there today. Uh, Lookout Mountain was based in the storied area of Laurel Canyon in Hollywood. Um, the facility still stands there today. It's a private residence. And when we first started looking at this, this project and we were out in LA for a, a fellowship, we just decided we would send a letter to, to the resident of that address and see if they might be interested in talking to us to see if they knew anything about this history. Cause we'd, we'd gotten access to a lot of things, but we were still curious what else was there. And we managed to, um, uh, meet the very warm then owner of the, of the, the former facility named John Ladner, a retired judge there in Los Angeles. And he welcomed us in, showed us around the facility, which he was in the process of, of renovating and very generously share with us some microfilm that was the first glimpse we got into the daily life of Lookout Mountain Laboratory. It, it, it helped us learn that there existed such things as annual and biannual reports from this unit that would actually give us the look into their processes that we needed to really say something about, about how they were formed and what formed them. Yeah, because in reading the book, you as you point out, it's an actual working studio. And therefore, it had to have been organized in some way, and it had to have its reasons for existence and, and ideas of what it was doing. Even if it was classified, um, just being able to find uh, a better sense of what it was doing on a regular basis has got to have been really where's where I think you've probably figured, okay, now we've got some place to go with this. Yeah. And I, I think we should acknowledge too, the, the person who came before us and in, in some ways was a really interesting Hollywood figure named Peter Curran, 
Um, Pete is an accomplished special effects artist and a real leader and innovator in that area out in Hollywood. He's worked on a lot of films that you would know. And Peter seems to have stumbled into these, these guys somehow as well. And I'm not quite sure how he first came across them, but Peter has edited a series of films that are essentially highlight reels from the nuclear test films. And he made one short documentary about the filmmakers themselves. And uh, that was the only other view we'd, we'd had into any of their workings or even to the to see the photographers and who they were. So one of the things that I want to talk about it early on in this um, discussion is that the unfortunate part, the negative part, was that um, a lot of the archival material that you would have loved to have been able to look at doesn't exist anymore. Plus, as you point out, some material is still classified. But what ended up? You said the the organ the, the, the studio existed till nineteen sixty nine. What happened at the end of when it closed? Well, um, that's a great question, and uh, the details of that remain a bit fuzzy. And uh, we have had to rely on. Um, testimony of people who were not firsthand um, witnesses, but who heard sort of secondhand uh, what what happened um, as far as we can tell. So the reason, well, there are many reasons that the studio was closed, Vietnam uh, not least among them, uh, and the uh, growing unpopularity of the Department of Defense in places like Hollywood. Um, and so uh, the studio, when it was closed, as far as we, we understand, um, some of the holdings uh, holdings in the studio, and when we talk about these holdings, we're talking about, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of films, um, as well as um, hundreds of thousands of photographs, as well as uh, who knows how many reams and reams and reams and reams of paper. So we're talking about a massive collection because part of what this facility did and introduce in addition to producing uh, images and films was um, store them. And, uh, and so it was a storage facility among other things. And so from what we can tell um, <clears throat> uh, there was kind of three paths that the, the content, well, maybe even four, four paths that the content went on. One was some of it went to Los Alamos and we have, um, we have, um, we have good, good testimony to that effect that some of this stuff went to Los Alamos. Some of it went to other air force bases. And, um, and so we too have good, good testimony to that effect. Apparently, uh, a good portion of the of the material went either to um, an Air Force warehouse um, or to in the dumpster. <laughs> and so um, it's really one of the, the things that um, is quite remarkable, actually, about the story of this place is that for all of its historical significance and and Kevin and I really don't think we're overestimating or overstating when we say that it's the most important Hollywood film studio of the Cold War. Um, uh, nevertheless, the uh, the Department of Defense, um, by the time they closed the facility, um, didn't seem to want to have much to do with it and um, didn't seem to really care to preserve its its history in any um, concerted way. And so it just kind of the holdings went this way and that, and a lot of them ended up in a dump somewhere. And, uh, and so that's what we were left with. 
And, you, and Joel, you can look at a number of, of vectors of change that happen over the course of the studio's work. So the studio is born out of a need for secrecy, first and foremost. You needed a shop that could shoot, develop, and store film in one place without carting it around where it could possibly get seen by the wrong eyes. This was sensitive data on, recorded on film. But then at, growing out of that need for secrecy, Lookout Mountain began to demonstrate really unique expertise that no other military film studio could match, be that expertise in how to capture some of these unique atomic events that are at the very border of science, or be it expertise in how to stage these events with the right kind of scoring and the right kind of narration and the right kind of animation to make it seem inevitable, as it were, to, to perform the rhetorical work that films need to perform for circulation within government um, screens and, and, and screenings. But over time, you know, testing itself uh, goes away with, with test bans eventually. The, the tests move underground before that, and so even photographically it becomes a different project to document those things. The expertise also begins to, um, to change with the rise of video. And you get pressure on the government to stop doing so much standalone production instead of contracting it out to, um, to folks that people like congressmen could, uh, would be able to say they, they brought contracts home to their home, their home uh, um, states. So there's, there's a lot of, lot of things in play about, about the, the rise and fall of this, this unit. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So in your study, were you able to get enough information to sort of tell you who was running the place, what their background was? Obviously, as we pointed out, it was a military unit out of the Air Force, but one assumes that there was at least some people working on it who had some skills uh, as far as film. I don't know if it came out of World War II or or what, but who were the kind of people that were doing this work? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, the studio throughout its history, and these are rough numbers, but, you know, was was 80% civilian um, employees and, and 20% or so um, military. Um, so it was overwhelmingly a civilian operation, but it was under military authority. And so at every point in its history, there was a military commander in charge of the studio. And uh, those those commanders did have uh, typically had some sort of background in uh, in motion pictures or, um, photography within the military. And you're exactly right, Joel. I mean, back into world war two. And so this would include things like, uh, reconnaissance photography, um, <clears throat> in, uh, world war two, but also, um, a really important, uh, antecedent to lookout mountain laboratory was the first motion picture unit which was um, a branch of the Army Air Force in World War II. It was also based, it was in Culver City. Uh, it was the brainchild of, uh, of Hap Arnold, um, uh, an Air Force or an Army Air Force um, uh, general. And um, 
the first Muslim picture unit um, during the course of the war, um, much like Lookout Mountain Laboratory would um, later, uh, did everything from producing um, training films for uh, for men who are about ready to go out um, on the field to um, to you know, promotion films, promoting the role of the army air force within the boundaries of the United States. And so you might want to call those um, sort of domestic propaganda films. Um, So they were, and they, you know, there was a, like Lookout Mountain Laboratory, it was, um, it was a a full service studio um, like Lookout Mountain Laboratory. They ended up doing a lot of really interesting special effects work. Um, so there was a, the, the, you know, the, there's a line between, um, the first motion picture unit and lookout mountain laboratory, uh, that's somewhat, um, circuitous, but it is nevertheless, uh, direct. Um, so that's, that, that would be the background of at least a number of the military personnel at lookout mountain laboratory. And Kevin can maybe say something about the civilian personnel there. Yeah. The civilian the workflow from what we've been able to glean was quite fluid and civilians were coming in from industry uh, as their own jobs and markets waxed and waned. So uh, we know, for example, that some of the lead animators from Walt Disney came over to work for Lookout Mountain for a while. Um, We've talked to some veterans of Lookout Mountain who talked about how for some the workload at Lookout Mountain was really preferable to industry because it was a nine to five job. It was dependable. It wasn't um, project specific. You could come in and get to work. So it attracted a lot of folks and they worked hard to attract folks. They needed the, the best experts from Hollywood industry to be able to bring the legitimacy to their images and stories that they needed. But they also did a lot of training themselves. Um, as photography really rose and film really rose, as a really important part of the air force itself, they began to set up photographic training schools just for this kind of photography. The army air force had already been training photographers, but into the fifties and sixties, we see things like a a photography school set up in Orlando that lookout mountain had a hand in and making sure that folks could get trained there within the military to do the work they needed to do, whether that was technicians in the lab or, or shooting itself. And we've even learned in some interesting ways how um, young, newly graduated officers uh, coming out of uh, uh, ROTC program, for example, at a at a university somewhere in the states, uh, would go work for Lookout Mountain and then go take film school classes at USC at night, and 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 beef up their expertise there as well. So it was a really interesting nexus of of labor and knowledge. As we've already talked about, Atomic Cafe, the documentary, is literally nothing but a series of scenes and shots from different, mostly training films and other kinds of uh, films that were short films that were produced over during the Cold War period. And many of them, as you point out, are from Lookout Mountain. But um, that's there was a lot of work need for that kind of work going back into World War II, where we get films that were meant to be educational, but also a, you know maybe use the word propaganda, but certainly uh, to make sure that because uh, obviously back then it was there was no television, obviously, so um, how people saw what was going on during World War II and then going slight you know going a little bit later in the 40s was 
in their movie theaters and other kinds of locations. So they were looking, you know, obviously this must have been a uh, an important, at least somewhat of an important role for uh, these filmmakers. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it, it's important to note as well that the, the edited films that Look Up Mountain produced are just as important as the unedited footage they produce because they were looked to as just the providers of raw footage for the scientists at Los Alamos, right? The scientists needed to watch the film to see how the test worked. Yeah, they had sensors everywhere across the desert or across the atolls to measure that science, but photography and film was itself a scientific apparatus during these tests. And so Lookout Mountain had, had heavy responsibilities there as well. And as you point out, uh, um, some of this, you know, staging was pretty clear and some of the outtakes show some of that where people are, you know, especially in the atolls where there are native people living in how you show them being agreeing to be there for these tests or being moved because of the tests and so on. So it's not uh, surprising that the outtakes would be so interesting. Yeah. So where did they get their lack of better? I mean, I don't want to say contracts because obviously they were working for the government, but where did they get their uh, orders for what kinds of films needed to be made? Yeah, that that's a, another good question. Um, uh, I and you know it, this is a, a a twenty year plus history, and so that that too the answer to that question does change over time. However, in general, um, there were three types of um, requesters, we might say. Um, uh, first and most obviously, there was the Department of Defense, and particularly the Air Force, um, uh, which this Lookout Mountain Laboratory was a branch of the Air Force. Um, and so um, there, they, the Air Force naturally went to them for especially training films um, and promotional films of various kinds. Um, but then you also had um, a Department of Defense um, sort of uh, conglomerations like the, Air, uh, the Armed Services Special Weapons Project, which was the interbranch um, entity between the Navy, the Army, and the Air Force um, responsible for overseeing nuclear weapons testing. And so... Uh, that really that group, the Armed Forces Special Weapons Project, ended up being um, a, a major, the major um, uh, client, we might say, of Lookout Mountain Laboratory and um, uh, together with the the Atomic Energy Commission. And so um, that which was a civilian agency. Right. And so um, so part of the story we tell in the book, which we find really fascinating and is part of the reason we would encourage people to buy the book and read it is is that um, uh, here you have an Air Force film studio that is doing work for the Air Force. But really, the more you look at it, the more you start to see that really the vast majority of the work they're doing is not for the Air Force directly at all. It's for these other agencies and uh, specifically for the Atomic Energy Commission and the, and the Armed Forces Special Weapons Project. Those are really the two main clients. And then you can start to throw in other clients like government contractors, surprisingly, perhaps, um, uh, like Boeing, 
um, who would uh, request a film about a particular project they're doing for the government or the Federal Civil Defense Administration, which most people, when they think about Cold War films, tend to think of uh, civil defense films. And uh, what's interesting about Lookout Mountain Laboratory is that in terms of uh, on a for- on, formally speaking, uh, they, they did very little civil defense work. They did a little bit of it, but the, um, but very little relatively speaking. And so, um, so while they did work a bit with the federal civil defense administration that they were a minor client for, for Lookout Mountain. And so Joel, within film studies, what Ned and I learned being new to aspects of this work is that really the proper context within which to understand this question is in the context of industrial film studios or what scholars call non-theatrical film studios. The the folks who worked on a contractual basis, as your question implied, who, who take in projects and produce them just at a scale that a Hollywood studio could probably not touch because of just, it's a factory for the production of films on contract. And that that's very much the way they worked. We, we uh, came to learn that they needed to mechanize their process of intake the way any other shop would in terms of understanding the client needs and expectations. And of course, there was the issues of security too. No outside firm could do this work because so much of it was classified. Yeah, that's right. Indeed. So, for example, uh, would they be the studio that would have uh, filmed some of these tests? Because obviously we have lots of films of actual tests during that period, or uh, were they, was that some of their work or most of what they did? Or because um, you talk a lot about the working for scientists with a lot of their work, where to give them the information they needed to what was actually happening during a nuclear blast. Yeah, you know, as far as uh, they, um, how should I put this? That the a, a relatively small but important percentage of their work was in and around nuclear tests. So if you actually were to quantify all the films they did, you would be surprised to see that maybe, I don't know, 20, I'm guessing rough numbers here, 20% is very nuclear test centric. And the rest is a bunch of other Department of Defense related projects. That said, if you look at America's nuclear tests in the 19, uh, late 1940s, 1950s, and into the 1960s, almost all the footage you're going to see of those tests comes out of Lookout Mountain Laboratory. I mean, there were a few other agencies. Um, uh, Los Alamos would send photographers. There were some government contractors that would send photographers. Um, but for the overwhelming uh, uh, majority of, of film footage from American nuclear tests was shot by Lookout Mountain's photographers and cameramen at these at these sites. So the book, I know we've been talking about the topic and don't want to not mention the, the book itself. Obviously, all of this is discussed in there, but first couple chapters are mostly a history, uh, the background of the actual uh, laboratory or the uh, studio. And then um, you start to get into some of their main different uh, action, you know, activities that they did. Some of their most, their famous ones, including, of course, the uh, Pacific. Many of the the tests that were done in the Pacific, the tests that were done 
in um, Nevada, Nevada. I keep forgetting the right way to pronounce that state. <laughs> uh, but so a lot of it seems to be different areas where they were working as to the way you sort of approached how you were going to look at this. Is that sort of what you had in mind as far as how you uh, set up the chapters? Yeah, we we geography did come to be an orienting element, but also chronology. The book does roughly follow the course of the studio's work, which, of course, parallels the course of America's rise to nuclear supremacy in a very different way of ordering the world around these weapons. And so why we begin to organize around geography isn't because we're arguing for a typology of the films themselves, but trying to highlight the ways in which whole vast aspects of the planet needed to be harvest, harvested and shaped and formed in ways that would uh, argue for uh, America's rightful presence there and its role there uh, in, in, in what was an extension of a colonial project. Yeah, and so if you if you look at the history of America's uh, nuclear weapons program, it it does um, you know it obviously starts in the Southwest uh, during World War II um, uh, with the Trinity test, but then it quickly, as you know, Joel moves to the Pacific, and and that's where it stays for a while. And there's a lot of controversy about any possibility of ever resuming continental nuclear testing because. Um, people are already starting to become quite aware in the early 1950s that this stuff is um, – that fallout is real and this stuff can be lethal. And um, uh, But nevertheless, for national security reasons or at least justifications, um, uh, Nevada is opened as a test site in the, in the early 1950s. And so our book moves from the Pacific to Nevada, like Kevin said, it's a geographical move, but it also is a chronological move. And then it, and then it moves from Nevada to, um, in some ways, um, uh, um, space and um, the atmosphere through um, our discussion of the missile program and the way in which Lookout Mountain very early on gotten involved in the missile program, which would end up really overwhelming uh, the studio, um, much more so than the nuclear weapons test ever did. And then from there, we look at um, uh, their Lookout Mountain's role in documenting and um, informing both government officials and the public about radar defense, which was largely based in the Arctic. Um, and so we moved to the Arctic and then we, we go to Vietnam, which is exactly where Lookout Mountain went and its operations um, uh, moved overwhelmingly in the course of the 1960s uh, to, to Vietnam. And it be, really became a Vietnam operation by the middle of the 1960s. And you said that is where things start to get, you know, starts to go down where it would eventually close. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, partly because of uh, the kind of uh, negative political energy that Vietnam produces in the United States, especially in places like um, Laurel Canyon, um, which is uh, at the time was kind of uh, one one hub of kind of hippie culture among many in the United States. Um, uh, but also because um, in some ways, uh, Lookout Mountain becomes so good at what they do 
which has produced large quantities of film in very short periods of time that uh, the Air Force says, hey, we can even do this better if we move them to a bigger facility. If um, we centralize these operations, if we make if we put everything under one big Air Force um, uh, audiovisual umbrella, et cetera, et cetera. And so let's just take it's almost like a proof of concept kind of thing where they they prove that you can produce obscene amounts of film in a short period of time and process it and store it and classify it. And so the Air Force by the late 1960s is like, we can do this on a much larger scale. And that's what they attempt to do. Um, and part of that is just is closing down the facility there in Laurel Canyon and, and uh, moving all audiovisual operations to Norton Air Force Base, um, which is where uh, some of Lookout Mountain's stuff goes. <clears throat> and importantly, when it moved to San Bernardino there at Norton, that was also a move to consolidate audiovisual production across the armed forces. And so for a brief while there, they take what they learn out in the field and apply it to a centralization for uh, for a much broader remit there. And that, that modulation between dis distributed and centralized approach to photographic expertise is a really interesting um, thread to follow through all this work. So is there any way of telling how much is left of their material, or is it could, if you couldn't even find a an exact listing of everything they did or if it's not even available for view because it's still classified or is there any way of telling how much of the material is still in an archive? So we, we, you know, this is in a way been a bibliographic project all along, right? Trying to construct exactly that list. And they were, they were a unit that was supposed to be invisible, not just secret, but invisible. They shouldn't be getting a lot of credit for the work, right? So there's, a lot of their films out there don't even have their name on them. But through reading the reports, we've been able to get a good sense of things like how many reels of film they produced over a six-month period, just from sheer shooting and developing. We've been able to get a pretty good sense of uh, a lot of the, the actual edited feature films that they constructed. But we're we're still operating in the dark here. We, we have a firm list of upwards of eight or 900 films that we are confident did exist at one time that were actually commissioned and completed edited films, uh, apart from the unedited footage that sits in reels and reels and secret places still. But of those eight to 900 films, uh, we've, we've not located you know, even a third of them in the archives uh, of, of military bases in the national archives and in fan culture. So, We've, we've just got the tip of the iceberg in what we can see. And even that is a lot to look at. <laughs> There's, it is a tremendous amount of footage. Yeah, and we've actually um, designed um, a website uh, where we, have, um, we are putting up all the films that we have been able to acquire in digital form um, up on this website. And the URL for that is... It's going to be at lookoutamerica.org. When do you expect it to be up? Because obviously, uh, you know, people will go there. Because as you point out in the at the end of your introduction, your epilogue, and you just include so much of your so you know how you found, and so other people can can do research as well. Yeah, we've been sharing a lot of the films we find at the Internet Archive as well, which we look to as the best uh, preservers of these things, and we have to acknowledge the great work of Rick Prelinger who actually 
digitized a lot of these works and uploaded them there long ago so that we could even write about them. And so we're happy to take our own digitizations and add them to that. Yeah. And we hope Lookout America and it's um, .org um, uh, will will be up and running in uh, relatively um, finished form within a month or so of, of, this, of this interview. So by the middle of December. That's great. Yeah. Rick Prolinger, it's just unbelievable. If anybody, you know, the Internet Archive, you can get lost in that site, not even just with video. I mean, it's just unbelievable what kind of materials out there, old radio broadcasts and things. And it's just it's just unbelievable how much is is available there and that and his work and is it's just spectacular. You know, that that question of scale really comes up a lot for us in our work, Joel, it's even with just looking at Lookout Mountain's films and documents and photographs, there's so many to look at that in our moment, some scholars would say, oh, this looks like a big data project, or this looks like something that you ought to start looking at through uh, a more computationally informed process. And you know, we've, we've explored down some of those directions, and we've had a couple other attempts at creating online interfaces for this work. And at the end of the day, we decided that though we are really invested in improving access to this work, we needed to make sure that there was a book, at least a physical <laughs> book, uh, that could tell the story of an archive that is as elusive in its changing um, uh, steward, stewards as it is large. Uh, we, there's documents and things we've found over the years uh, from sites that are no longer active. There are um, people who've been contracted by the federal government to facilitate access to government documents where the contract ends and the work disappears. This is a very contingent collection of objects out there that we hope our story helps at least testify to. I was going to ask what the status is of some of the material as far as declassification. Obviously, we know of various declassification projects, but is this one in which anybody has in the government has spent any real time on? Yeah, there was a really interesting period in the late, uh, in the 1990s that, that um, Kevin referred to earlier um, under Clinton's Department of Energy and the Energy Secretary, Hazel O'Leary, where there was a, a real concerted effort to um, declassify as much material related to nuclear testing in, uh, in the 1950s and 60s as possible, and that included um, a very methodical uh, process where uh, people in government were going through these films and essentially uh, what they call sanitizing them, which is basically cutting out parts that they felt were still uh, revealing of state secrets of one kind or another, and then um, uh, and then releasing those films to the public. And that um, project seemed like for a while it was it was well on its way. It was going to uh, eventually produce um, hundreds and hundreds of these films, as well as uh, supporting documentation. Um, but then we we had September 11th, and um, things quickly changed, uh, as we all know. After September 11th not the least with respect to worries about um, state secrets around nuclear tests and weapons and these sorts of things. And so that project qu quickly just sort of died. And, um, and uh, in fact, as Kevin was suggesting earlier, 
some of the stuff that had been um, posted um, and published, so to speak, online by the government um, in digital repositories was uh, eventually pulled. And um, and so um, you start to see something like a disappearing public archive um, in, in the years after September 11th. Thankfully, we were able to get in relatively early in that. So we feel like we uh, there's definitely stuff we got that later we couldn't find um, anymore that had been pulled. And so um, we, were, we were grateful for that. So obviously you've spent years on this book, as you pointed out. It's just unbelievable how much time you must have spent. Where Where are you now? I mean, is now that this book is out or about to come out, What's the next step, or are you going to continue to do work for towards studying uh, Lookout Mountain more, or are you time going to move on to other related topics? Both. Yeah, I mean, um, we have we kind of have two things that we're we're heading towards. Um, uh, I'll, I'll let Kevin speak to the to the further Lookout Mountain work, um, and I'll just throw in like one. I think our next challenge let's put it that way we don't know if it'll what it will produce um in the way in the way of publications but um is uh the the main uh uh photographic contractor that lookout mountain worked with um government contract was an outfit called eg and g or uh edgertinger meshhausen and greer which was um a firm that was founded by harold edgerton who is famous in engineering history uh and photography history for you've probably seen the bullet uh going through the apple um the high-speed photography uh um sort of feats and um and you know is even known in the art world well he was up at mit uh during the 1930s 40s and 50s um after world war ii um uh he and his graduate students got um actually during world war ii but then even more so after world war ii and his graduate students got pulled into um, doing uh, what they would have called technical or scientific photography at nuclear weapons tests, high-speed photography, um, you know, where you have many, 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 many thousands of frames per second. Um, and, uh, and eventually they became one of the largest government contractors uh, in, in the United States um, working on nuclear tests and uh, not only took – um, uh, photographs of these tests, but, um, but built these elaborate, uh, detonation systems. So the very detonation systems were designed by this group and they would wire both the bomb and the cameras all into one single time system. And so we have begun, we began, uh, we wrote some about this group in our book. And so if you get the book, you'll see, um, you'll learn about, uh, this group EG and G, uh, but we have high hopes of doing more work on them. And, um, in some ways taking on a different kind of challenge, which we think is a really important challenge for historians to take on. And that is, uh, so much of, um, national security is done now by, and has been for decades by contractors. And those contractors are not bound by the same types of laws when it comes to, um, archives and information and accountability that um, government agencies themselves are. And so um, it presents real challenges for historians who want to understand government operations when uh, so much of that work is being done by private contractors who are not obliged to keep records or um, be accountable in the same way. So we kind of have our eyes on trying to tell the history of this particular government contractor 
and its adventures um, during the 1950s, and uh, we'll see we'll see where that gets us. And then on the Lookout Mountain material itself, I think as detailed as our book is, we are mindful that one could go in and with a much closer eye on many aspects of this work. And so we hope this book serves as an introduction for others to come in and take a closer look at some of the shorter histories within it of certain testing regimes and the role of photography in them. We also are really thinking a lot about audience at this point in the work. We made the book really with an eye to getting a, a, a really broad audience. Obviously, we're working across many disciplines within academic audiences, but we also had in mind even the former photographers we've met along the way in this effort. We really want to see this material enter into a broader discourse and conversation about how we got the nuclear state that we have. And so we, we have some, I wouldn't call them plans yet, but aspirations to see people interact with this material in other forms, maybe an exhibition, for example, or a traveling show of some kind, maybe some edited work where we uh, put some of this work together ourselves into our own forms of documentary. So we, we really want to get into the material and get it into some different eyes and ears. Well, and you, as we've already talked, you've, you really only scratched the surface, but it seems like the book gave a great uh, introduction I guess it's the best way to put it, just to, as you point out, the way you've discussed it, uh, to be a overview that future by itself is interesting, but also can be used by future people, future uh, researchers who can use some of the material that uh, you've found and made available as a way to um, do their own work. Yeah, we would love to see that. <laughs> that would be dreamy for us, for yes. sure. <laughs> well. As I say, the book is in the whole topic is fascinating to me, and and I think um, what you've put together, as you pointed out, it's it's something that's not been done before, which is great uh, for you guys because you were able to, to to truthfully say you did something that hadn't been really studied before, and it also is a, a testament to some of the material that is now available from the Cold War and, and how some of the most interesting things that have come out of some of these between nuclear testing and other uh, incidents and, and situations during the Cold War that are now available for study. And I think uh, you've presented a, a really great example of what can be found with enough willingness to dig. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you. So thanks a lot for your time. And uh, I hope uh, good luck not only with the book, but uh, the website and all your other work related to this. Thank you so much, Joel. Thank thanks. you, Joel. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. My thanks to Kevin and Ned. This is a fascinating topic, which adds more to our understanding of the Cold War in America. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more new books and film a podcast series on the New Books Network.